This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Great Quarter, guys. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, research analyst here at Freight Waves. I have Seth Holm with me here, Mr. Uh, retail Guru, and also part of the Freight Intel group with me at Freight Waves. Seth, how are we, my man? Doing well, Andrew. we got a cool show, guys. We have had a lot going on over the past week. I don't know if you guys have kept up with the absolute bonkers news, uh, whether it's from Bitcoin rising to near all-time highs. It's, it's kind of peaking back up towards that December 2017 uh, peak. We have, we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're also going to talk about, uh, about Kramer. He considers this one of the most speculative markets that he's ever seen, and a lot of that's driven by the electric vehicles and the electric uh, market. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But our big conversation is going to be on uh, the, the Class 8 truck orders and the, uh, the trailer orders as well. We're going to talk, have a discussion whether or not this is the right time for carriers to be expanding their fleets. So that's going to be the big conversation. We're going to start with our uh, our opening segment, which is You Care or Nah. Again, this is our ode to Dan Lebetard's show, Highly Questionable. They do see or no. I'm going to give you an event, a topic, uh, or something going on in the market, and you tell me whether you care or not nah and why. All right. So the first one, we're going to start with a couple macro data points that have come out over the last, co- last couple days. The first one is the National Association of Home Builders Monthly Confidence Index rose five points to a reading of 90 in November, which is a record high. Seth, you care or not? I do care, um, although the housing market's getting hot enough to actually start to worry me a little bit. Um, the existing home sale, uh, the existing home sales, um, you know, there's just not enough supply on the market. And now you're seeing prices um, rise by about 16% year over year. Uh, and e- so even though that you have these, you know, record low interest rates, housing affordability is starting to get stretched, um, which, you know, can be a problem, especially also uh, we're starting to see uh, people talk more about inflation. So it'll be interesting to see where the, the housing market heads in 2021. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm excited to see this. I definitely do care about this uh, this this data set in particular. I've been watching this over the past few months. I mean, the the home builders after a pretty desolate 2019 or 2018 and 2019 are now very confident. You know, the home prices are up, as you said, but demand is ridiculous. We have this. You know, people kind of I think they over overblow the uh, the mass exodus story, but there are a lot of cities, especially on the West Coast, L.A., San Francisco, that are losing residents uh, to cities like Chattanooga and like Austin, Texas, and other you know tech entrepreneurial hubs uh, that we have. So. But yeah, it's good to see the home builders confident. That should be a good sign for for freight as well. People buy homes, they got to buy appliances, they got to buy furniture, they got to buy a bunch of other things to fill it up. So it's definitely a good thing for freight. All right, number two, this one's on retail sales. So we just got the October number was revised down. It came in uh, at 1.9% preliminarily at the, be- at the beginning of this month, but they revised that down all the way to just uh, 0.3%, so 30 basis points. You care or not, Seth? Uh, I don't care on this one. Um, I saw that, um, you know, they disappointed a little bit. Um, they've been positive for six straight months. Um, you do have a little bit of deceleration going on. I think it's more of a short-term blip. I think, uh, as you well know, 
We talk about it all the time. I think mm-hmm. Christmas uh, season will be strong. And so at this point, I'm not too worried about it. Yeah, I'm not too, I'm not too worried either. I think there, there were some disruptions based on, uh, you know, w- on what was sold when. I mean, the, the iPhone getting pushed back, I think definitely hurt October. Could have been, could have been better on there. Um, but overall, I agree. I think holiday season is going to be really strong. And I'm not too worried about this number. I think, uh, um, well, I lost my train of thought, but it doesn't matter. But let's go on. Uh, let's just push on to uh, number three. And this was actually a story that I did on Point of Sale yesterday, which is our retail supply chain newsletter. And this one's just on that brands and retailers in every industry, from Coach to Frito-Lay to uh, uh, every industry, I think, Bed Bath & Beyond and Kohl's, they're all slashing the amount of products they offer in, in an effort to slim down their supply chain. Seth, do you care or not about them kind of cutting a lot? And this is big, big time, uh, cutting a lot of their SKUs? Uh, I do care. And it, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, this was a big Wall Street Journal article. And so what you had was as America kind of got consumerized, right, from call it 40 or 50 years ago, and you had, you know, original Coke, and now Coke has, even Coke is paring back on their SKUs. Yep. I think they, from hundreds down to a hundred or so. Um, you know, as, as consumerism exploded in America, that both in brick and mortar sales and online, consumers were inundated with choice. And one thing that I think about, my brother lives in Europe, and so, uh, you know, I go to visit him. And one of the things I can always know where I am is whenever I go in the grocery store, in Europe, uh, there's just not a lot of varieties of whatever it is. If you think about any grocery store aisle in the U.S., I mean, just think about like the toothpaste aisle or the deodorant aisle. Like over there, there's two or three choices, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, here you've got 50 or 100. Um, so uh, and in another respect, though, it does kind of remind me of like investment bankers and consultants. Uh, they tell you, hey, put these two companies together. They'll be worth more. And then a couple years later, hey, take them apart. Um, and separate them again. They'll be worth more. So uh, I do think that there's this natural sort of evolution in terms of that did that worked for a little while and now people are inundated. So now we're going back to the way things were. Yeah, I mean, the internet, the advent of the internet and the, the rise of e-commerce freed freed not only consumers, but retailers as well from the, the physical constraints of a store, the electricity cost, the labor cost, uh, the actual uh, amount of stuff you could hold in a store. So it allowed them to to offer so much that it, yeah, as you said, to become inundated. There was a quote from the Bed Bath & Beyond uh, CEO. He said, the more products, the more confused the, uh, the consumer is. He also said that, so one of those things that Bed Bath & Beyond has been pairing back is their amount of can openers. I didn't realize this was such a big thing. And it's, it's kind of laughable, but Bed Bath & Beyond has shed two thirds of its can openers. Something like 40 or 50 different can openers have been taken off the shelves right. and they've seen uh, can opener sales increase roughly 30%. So it's like with less options, people are just more willing to pick one and go. Uh, and that, re- that reminds me when you, when you said something about Europe, I thought about to, to me living there and, uh, and how much I loved shopping at Aldi and how much, yeah. and how much success Aldi has had in the U.S. I think almost solely because of that idea is that they just have less, less options, cheaper stuff. Uh, and you get, you get what you need. You don't need 10 options. That was the, the, the quote from, uh, the coach CEO said that we don't need three types of red in every bag. Right. So it's going to help retail. Arguably, you know, some of their survey work has suggested it's going to help sales because when you narrow the choices, people will just buy more volume. It'll also help their margins because it'll stop those end of season discounts of all that stuff you couldn't sell. Yep. But the other thing that pops into my head, um, I know I do this a lot. I'm sure everyone else 
else does. But uh, now you have Amazon's choice or recommendation or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. When you enter in it on Amazon, I tend to just rely on that, to be honest. If it's like under $100 or whatever, uh, and it's not, it's not that big of a purchase. I just tend to go with the five-star thing that they recommend with a lot of reviews. And I think that's sort of an outgrowth of this phenomenon. Yeah, it certainly could be. Um, I mean, yeah. And we, Seth and I were talking about this off air is like, does this actually, you know, the, the way that the Wall Street Journal article presented it, it was like they were trying to slim down the supply chain. And I don't know if it's, I mean, yes, it's slimming it down, but it's not so much making it any smaller. You're, they're trying to increase sales with this. They're trying to uh, decrease the amount of discounts they have to do at the end of the year. So I don't think the actual supply chain gets any smaller. It just gets more concentrated on the goods that are selling really well at the time. Right. And then that raises a lot of questions like we were talking about, you know, the, is the existing supply chain in terms of factories producing all this? Or are they just going to have changeovers on the manufacturing line? Uh, but, but yeah, arguably, you could argue that uh, the throughput in terms of the transportation sector, will actually it's actually a good thing for volumes. Yeah. All right. So I got another one for you. This is the one I, I hinted at a minute ago. This uh, Jim Cramer calls this the most speculative stock, speculative stock market he's ever seen. Much of this is driven by the rally on the SPACs. Uh, we talk about those uh, ad nauseum here at Freight Waves, and then also the EV-related stocks. For example, Tesla has rushed from a uh, $100 billion market cap at the beginning of the year to now a $500 billion market cap. They're now worth something like half of all uh, of the entire automotive industry market cap, which is crazy because they only sell 500,000 cars <laughs> when yeah. the rest of the industry sells 20 million uh, in total. So all, all in all, uh, you care or not that Kramer thinks this is the most speculative stock market he's ever seen? I do. I definitely do care because I, 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 I watch all this closely. I mean, I do agree in pockets. This is the, what we're starting to see, I think, are early signs of very speculative activity. Um, yeah, Elon Musk is the second richest individual in the world now uh, behind Bill Gates. Kind of crazy, especially for all those short sellers uh, that were shorting it back at the IPO. Um, you know, and so, yes, a lot of the rally has been in SPACs. We've talked about, I mean, I've had, you know, only one or two, but I've had a couple stocks that have nearly doubled or doubled in a week or a month. Like, that shouldn't happen. And that's happening all over the place in SPAC and anything related to electric vehicles. And it's spread far beyond Tesla. Now it's, it's, uh, it's there's the Wall Street Journal also did an article. There's too many electric vehicle related SPACs to keep up with. But, uh, you know, we talked about blink charging, right? Mm -hmm. Blink charging has gone up 30 times uh, or thereabouts yep. in, a, in a couple yeah, months. Yeah, it was a $2 stock in June. Now it's uh, roughly a $30 stock. Yeah, it was up 50% on Monday. In one day. Yeah. So this is happening all over the place. So I don't think overall uh, this is as crazy as the tech bubble was, but there are certainly pockets where that's true. And I sort of understand why the market is is reacting very fav favorably. Uh, you're going to you should have a split Congress along with Joe Biden, who's not um, you know, he's pretty business friendly. And I don't think we're going to see the tax increases. Uh, he's not going to be able to get that through. And then you'll probably get a reduced form of stimulus. Mm -hmm. uh, and stock markets sort of love that type of situation. And, you, you know, you're arguably coming, you're in the early stages coming off of an economic bottom. And so I get the fact that a lot of stocks are expensive. A lot of stuff's going up. That's normal. But what's not normal is all these SPACs doubling inside of a week. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking back, you, you just you said something that stocks are not supposed to double in a week or a month. And I was thinking, you know, maybe in the case of like Zoom, where their entire business model changes over the course of a month, maybe in that case where they can see they see revenues double or triple or quadruple in a quarter. Right. But that's not what's happening at Blink. That's not what's happening at Neo and some of these other EV stocks that have just seen explosive growth. 
Yeah, I mean, Citroen Research, which is a prominent short-selling firm, I think put out a short recommendation on Blink. Uh, I wasn't able to read it yet, but I think they referred to them having a million dollars in revenue. You would know more than I do. But yeah, it's, it's a tiny company. So it's a billion-dollar market cap, they've got like and they've 60 got a million, employees. a million in revenue. So, you know, my, on my math, that's a thousand <laughs> times revenue. Ridiculous, people. It's uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, we're going to see how this how this translates into 2021. I mean, the Biden administration is uh, certainly going to be more pro green energy, pro electric uh, EVs. You're probably going to see the the tax credits extended uh, and put back in place wherever they were taken out in California. But you know, so there's going to be you know upside of demand for EVs, but a thousand X. You know, <laughs> and you know what's even stranger? Can you do you know what the number one performing sector since Joe Biden got elected is? Energy. Traditional energy. Yeah. 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 Strange times. If that doesn't tell you a little bit about what, what kind of president Joe, they're expecting Joe Biden to be, uh, I don't know what will. All right. So the last one here, this is something that, you know, I haven't spoken about in a long time. It's something that I care deeply about and have been involved in for a long time. But it's time to talk about it because it's approaching all-time highs. This is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is back, apparently, according to everybody else. Uh, and if you look at the, the price of the last few days, it's I, it's been ridiculous. It's now up to close near the, two, the December 2017 highs of 19.7. So it's it's in the 19.5 range right now. We're likely going to see that bust out to the upside here in the next couple of weeks. Seth, you care or not that Bitcoin is approaching all-time highs? I care. And you got me in on some this is a watershed moment, yeah, everyone. This is a watershed in. moment. A year ago when I met him, this was this was not the Seth home that I uh, that That's I had. Right. I, I was I mean, so I did a lot of research on Bitcoin years ago. And I so Ray Dalio has been sort of uh, he's had mud thrown at him in the media. He's a very the biggest hedge fund manager. And, you know, he was caught up in the fact that Bitcoin uh, cannot be used as a currency to buy things. And yep. it's too volatile and, it, and it's not a good store of value. So. Uh, you know, in the past, I'd kind of, and then it, you know, it seemed like it could be hacked. Uh, as as I've gotten older, you kind of talked me into. You, Andrew said he thought Bitcoin was going to a hundred thousand, and I actually, so I was like, okay, let me look into this. Take a look. Let me look into this, and so I had to buy some Bitcoin, and I actually agree with him. Um, I think the the major bull case right now for Bitcoin, and I want to steal your thunder because I want to no, hear no, go it. off script here, and I want to hear your thirty second elevator pitch for why. Not investment advice, but why anyone should be interested in buying Bitcoin. But I think what's 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 driving Bitcoin right now is not only the fact that there's a pretty speculative fever to capital markets in general, which certainly helps that backdrop. But um, you know, uh, so with the coronavirus, right? The global economy shut down. All of the G7 and developed economies are in a major, major recession. Even China, I think, is the only one that's going to escape recession. And, you know, as well as I do, we can't trust their data. And so, you know, arguably, even they may have had negative GDP. Uh, and so what that's resulted is you're talking about 80 to 100 trillion in GDP that's going to be down, I don't know, anywhere from five, 10 percent, trillions of dollars yep. in GDP shortfall this year that developed and developing governments had to make up. So we didn't go back into 2008 or a Great Depression. They had to bridge that gap with fiscal spending. And so you've just had, it's not only dollar debasement, but it's global currency debasement. And so, uh, and then you've got the Biden administration and arguably, as I've said, we're at an economic trough or we probably were in about May or June. And so uh, as the world comes back and with all this easy fiscal and monetary policy, we might have inflation for the first time in a few years. Uh, And when you combine that with the fact that global debt and deficits are just ballooning, 
uh, and the fact that you've seen you know, uh, technology in general accelerate and e-commerce and all these sorts of things, I think all that is coming together into one. People are skeptical of those hard currencies more than they ever have been. And uh, now it's a way to hedge. It's the new digital gold, and it's a way to hedge your portfolio. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then even central banks have adopted some of the... Uh, or they've talked about it. I, you know, so I'm, I'm going to give it over to you, but there's a name for whatever the central bank coins are, are called. Yeah, so my pitch is that I do, I do believe Bitcoin. So that the, the, the best analogy I can make is that whether, where the internet was the creation and aggregation and, and the, the, the ability to aggregate and disseminate information, cryptocurrencies are the ability to aggregate and disseminate value, to be able to transfer value between one person to, anal- one person to the next without having... A centralized body over it, so no government authority over this. Uh, and we can get into some of those discussions if we have time about about the, the new age Bitcoin, about Square and PayPal and uh, and Robinhood making Bitcoin just easier to buy. Um, but in all, I just I agree with the the inflation hedge. I think my long term thesis for Bitcoin is that think about these kids. You talk to older people and they always say that, oh, I like paper money. I like my real money. Think about all the kids. Think about my nieces and nephews. I've got eight of them that just play video games all the time. They're used to in-app currencies. They're used right. to coins. They're used to things that are not the U.S. dollar. And they, uh, they are used to appointing value to those coins. So this isn't, we're not talking about the next five years. We're talking about 50 years down the road in that digital currencies are going to be completely commonplace. Every country will likely have their own. Uh, look at um, the, the, the digital yuan that, that China's yeah. trying to reach out, the digital ruble that, that Russia's trying to put out. Everybody knows that cryptocurrencies are coming. It's just going to be who is able to create the best form of it and, and who can try to get, get as much control on it as they can. And I don't think the people that get into cryptos are, 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 are going to like that very much. So they're going to see Bitcoin as the outlet that I don't need to own digital US dollar or digital ruan or digital rubles or whatever currency you have. It's just an extension of fiat in that case. So get one that's completely decentralized. Get one that's only getting better. The, de- the devs are only getting better. There's more people working on Bitcoin applications now than there ever has been. Uh, and you're right. It's not yet a place to buy and sell goods. It's not, it's not quite there yet. And, and it, I don't know if it ever will be on a micro level, but on a macro level, buying big items, s- sending big items, uh, bin- sending big amounts of money, it's better than any other, any other thing you can do. You can send hundreds of millions of dollars in Bitcoins for pennies on the dollar without anybody knowing where it went or how it happened uh, instantly, Yeah, which is scary. But it's also, it's, it's most scary for the governments, not for the people that, that are using it. You shouldn't be scared to use it. The government should be scared that, oh, this is how they take us out of power. We no longer have control of the money supply. That, that is the long-term thinking. And, and I'm not saying everybody should rush out and buy as much Bitcoin as they can. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying half a percent of your portfolio, 1% of your portfolio. If you're willing to go buy Blink Charging or, or, uh, or, or Nikola back in the day when, when we knew nothing about them, then you shouldn't see Bitcoin as such a scary thing. Right. And I, I bought 1% and then I saw it started take off so fast and I was like, all right, let's make it 2%. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, one thing that really uh, resonated with me was um, Kathy Wood, who is you know, CEO lady. and chairman of ARK Invest. And she's best known probably for killing it on Tesla, but she's been right on a lot of things. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the institutional investing community has kind of thought, oh, you know, she just endorses all these crazy tech stocks and doesn't care about valuation. But, you know, she really made a point that rang true with me. And she said she is prone to hyperbole. But she said that she thinks Bitcoin can go to 500,000. And she did this in a Barron's interview that you and I saw. And it made a lot of sense to me because I've been in that seat. And she said, basically, the the thesis is really simple. If 
this gets, I think we're in the top of the first inning in terms of institutional adoption of Bitcoin. And given the fact that there's only 21 million coins, there's a very fixed supply. Mm-hmm. If institutional investors turn this into a new asset class, like they did with hedge funds, like they did with private equity, like they did with real estate, yep. emerging market equities, you name it. If they take their allocations from zero to either 1%, 2%, Very small. 5%, yep. the, the price is going to go parabolic. Yeah, you're, you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that can, that can flood into this asset class uh, if that happens. And I, I do think it will happen. I think it's just a matter of time. I think once they... Um, I mean, we're already seeing it, right? We're all, we've already seen hedge funds and some of the bigger funds buying up hundreds of millions of dollars in Bitcoin to try to, to, try to get ahead of this. And right. the one thing I'd say as an, uh, an inflation hedge, the one point I wanted to make, I want to make this for Kevin, who's, uh, who's on, on vacation in uh, would California. Would we call him a Bitcoin hater, by the way? Oh, yeah, I would. Well, I'd call him more a gold lover. And my point, yeah. my point yeah. on gold, which is, this is a good segue to, uh, to Spaceways. If you want some more information on this, Kevin is going to be speaking with a lady that um, is working on plans on how to mine, uh, mine our solar system. And one of the one of the big things, one of my big uh, my big detriments to gold is that we've got meteors in space with more gold than we could ever use in a million years. If we somehow find a way to mine that and get it back here, you can kiss the price of gold goodbye. You're never going to go out into the outer space and find more Bitcoin. So that, that's that that, was the that's, that's my that's my closing thesis, point. Right? Yes, uh, yes. That's by the, the way, that's the Winklevi. <laughs> one of my favorite investors, Stan Druckenmiller, is his name, and he did an interview recently with I think it was Bloomberg, but. You know, he confessed that he owned Bitcoin for the first time. And he said he's always been a he's a long time. He's critical of central banks. So he's always been a big proponent of gold. He changes his mind a lot, but he's most famous for being George Soros's trader. Anyways, what he said, this would be my message to Kevin. He said, I own a lot more gold, but I like Bitcoin probably better because it's going to have a higher beta. And if gold works, Bitcoin's going to go up, but it's going to go up a lot more. Yes, that's true. Uh, if the price of gold goes up, you can almost guarantee that the price of Bitcoin will go up. I mean, I, I just simply as uh, as an inflation hedge, as a, a store of value outside of uh, government entities. Yeah, so. that's true. So we got 10 minutes. Let's try to get to our <laughs> what was supposed to be our bigger conversation. But we're, we talked about Bitcoin and that's fun. And, and if you want us to talk about Bitcoin more, we certainly can. But let's talk about trucking a little bit. Should you be adding trucks, trailers or doing nada? So the, let, let's 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 state this. So the pros and cons, the yes reasoning is fairly straightforward, right? It's cash. More and confidence right now they have the rates are great demand is being driven by factors that should hold throughout the in, throughout the majority of next year let's go get some trucks make some more money right pretty simple right. but the no side is a bit more complex and that's what we're going to spend our time on here so i'll just give some quick data points and then we'll get into the discussion so on the truck side of things in september we saw class eight truck orders at thirty-one thousand three hundred. that was up 146 percent over last year again okay beautiful i forgot about our chart here uh, so this is seth, seth and i's model uh you can look at that purple or magenta line as the 2020 that's the the most important line we're looking at as well as that flat white line so that flat white line is what we estimate to be the replacement rate. So uh, we can get into that if you want to, but it's about 225,000 trucks. It's just a natural replacement rate of older trucks out of the market each year. That's what is needed to be bought to replace it. So we've been well below that for the for all of 2019 and the majority of 2018 up until uh, September and October. We've seen those numbers just fly up. Again, in October, we saw 38,900, even bigger over the September number. That was up 75% year over year. And uh, that, that surge to the surge in September was the highest monthly total 
since October 2019, but then it went even higher in October. And then let's say from FTR, they say the net Class 8 truck orders over the past 12 months ending in September was at 197,000 uh, units, but then they added another 20 or 40,000 units in October. So right, right. now for the 12, tra 12 months trailing, we're about at the replacement rate. Seth, do you think this massive surge that we've seen in September and October has been a factor of pent-up demand, or are these people uh, really looking at this market and thinking, all right, it's time to expand? Well, that's one of the problems. I just wrote a paper on this whole topic, right? So uh, set the stage here. So that, you know, back on that chart, you showed that magenta line. Uh, my main takeaway is it's about that green line was 2018, and it's mm -hmm. basically off the chart. It's yep. the very top of the chart. We're about to cross over that line. And so there's basically a couple camps here, right? Uh, and, I, and I talk about this. If you're a Passport Research subscriber, uh, in the email on Friday, I put out this report. But so here, here's what it basically is. Right now, new truck orders are surging. There's several, there's a bull camp and there's a bear camp. What the bullish people say, and a lot of the truckload executives are on this side, uh, they're saying, hey, because of COVID, you had OEM shut down. Mm -hmm. uh, our average truck age got extended. In Werner's case, they talked about it going from 1.8 years to 2.0 years. So, hey, most of this, and, and given the fact that we ran so far below replacement rate for all of 2019, the better, the first half of 2020, and maybe the very end of 2018, we're just playing a little bit of catch up here. It's we're just replacing old fleets. And by the way. There's such a um, bottleneck of drivers because of the, uh, you know, partial capacity of these new driver schools, the drug and alcohol clearinghouse. Not only is it, it's, it's primarily aging fleets. And, you know, even if that's happening, even if it were new capacity, right? So that's the big question. Is it aging fleets replacing? Is it new capacity? Is it uh, large enterprise carrier drivers striking out on their own because you've got $3 spot rates and they mm -hmm. think they can make a lot of money? going out and entering the owner-op market. So one of the problems here and what makes this interesting is we have really good demand side uh, data in freight waves and sort of in the industry, but supply data is very, very hard to come by. And we have it, but it's really messy. It's, it's old. Uh, there's like, there's a lot of problems with it. Yeah, the um, FM, FMCSA so data is the, the biggest... long answer. We don't know. And yep. I see we have five minutes left. Uh, we don't know, but in my view, at least a portion of that has to be organic capacity. And I define that as like sort of new capacity entering the industry. And the reason why uh, John Kingston wrote about um, trucking employment, which is the BLS mm -hmm. figure, that's up 4% off of the April low. Yep. So trucking, and that doesn't count owner ops. Yes. So that is up 4%. New truck orders are up gangbusters. They're double replacement. ACT's number is 20,000 a month. We're running about 40,000. We're double that. And then, uh, you know, if you throw in investors in the mix here, all these truckload stocks are down anywhere from call it 10 to 20% off their highs while the markets are going gangbusters and making new highs. And I think the reason is, is because this market has shown a lack of historical discipline when it comes to capacity expansion. So I don't think anybody knows a great answer, but what the worry is, is, hey, even if this is starting out as aging fleets, as long as rates stay where they are, yep. eventually it's going to be organic capacity and this cycle is going to come to an end. It's probably not going to happen for another year because we're about to push through gigantic contract rate increases. But it's more of a question of late 2021, 2022. Yeah, I mean, it's important to note that most of these 
trailers and tractors are not going to be delivered till the second half of 2021 to begin with. But you, you said something that uh, reminded me. I think it was Derek Leathers, uh, the Warner CEO. He said uh, he basically, you know, jumped to that. This is just a pent up demand. The, they're afraid of the OEM shutting down again. So they're going to everybody's replacing what they right. can right now. It's just kind of funny that uh, carrier CEOs are very quick to to try to throttle down any chance of adding capacity or for rates to go down. Well, and you I know, think that, Derek Leathers is very that. impressive, but he's also very smart. Yeah, he's very and smart. Do, they probably thought that question might come up on the conference call. What do you think? Yeah, maybe. I think so they, maybe I think they, I think they, they might have had an answer that they thought. Um, and I'm not saying he was being dishonest at all. No. I mean, no, I, think, no. I think what he said was primarily true. But what do you think in the back of... So let, let's, in the last two minutes here, what would you do right now? If you were running your own carrier, make it whatever size, are you going to go out there and chase rates and expand your fleet, and why? One, I think it would depend on the driver, right? Until we get these driver, if you have access to new drivers or to drivers that are willing to come work for you, then maybe you do. But my, my whole issue here has been that with the driver restraints, I, thought, I saw Eric Fuller, uh, CEO of US Express, says that he believes that we'll end 2020 with 200,000 fewer CDLs on the road than we did when we entered the year. So if you can't find drivers to seat your trucks, there's no reason to be going out and buying trucks. Now, trailers are a slightly different story because you see companies like Amazon and you even see retailers and, and, and brokerages as well getting out into the assets, buying up a bunch of trailers and creating more drop and uh, drop and hook programs, that makes a little bit more sense. And you know, if you can't get drivers, maybe just go get trailers and try to create more turns. That's that's a that's a theory that I could see. But if you're a small trucking company and you were in the market in 2018, I feel like 2018 should still be weighing on your mind. Fresh in your mind, right? It still should be fresh. So, but as you said, this industry has proven time and time again that there's not all that much discipline. Uh, they they get kind of googly eyed when they see three dollars a mile and they go out and buy trucks. And I'm not. I'm not saying it's a bad choice. I'm just saying really think it out because in 2021, we're going to have three or four, maybe even five vaccines that are going to come to market. People yep. are Most of the people in America are going to be vaccinated by the end of 2021, and people are going to be going on vacation. They're going to be going back to Mexico and to Europe and to Canada and everywhere else that they'll allow us and spending money on groceries at, uh, at restaurants and yep. everything else. So the demand for goods is going to go down. Uh, it, it will likely still be elevated sometime next year, but we're not going to see these growth rates. We're going to see people spending money on services again. So just be yeah. prepared for that. Yeah. And I've, okay. So let me give my 30 second answer here. So I think in some ways it makes sense. So Werner has talked and others have talked about expanding their dedicated capacity. Yes. That to me makes sense because yes. that's a guarantee that someone's, you've got a, you've got an actual contract and someone's going to pay you. Uh, I think the smarter strategy, but what happens is everybody's like, ooh, just this one customer, I'll do it for them. But then you add it up at the greater level, and then it ruins the party for everyone. So I think for me, the strategy, unless it was expanding dedicated, uh, I would be uh, trying to maximize my operating margin and, and building cash and waiting. Yeah, that's another thing that we noticed that people, even in the beginning of the pandemic, nobody had any cash like tr tr on every industry, but especially in the trucking, trucking industry. It's very CapEx cap heavy. Try to save up some cash while the time's good while the, and get it while the getting's good. All right, guys, that's been it. That's all we got. Uh, everybody have a happy holidays. We are back on Space Thursday Waves. next week. Yeah, with Space Waves. We're going to be with Ron Epstein, Bank of America analyst. going to be great.